You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Richard Brennan and I, Niels Kastelarsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation with Mark last week where we discussed strategies for rebalancing your portfolio, my thesis on deglobalization and its impact on trend following, and the hedger's dilemma and how the LME may have lost the trust of its clients. And we could not help discussing a term that Mark actually wrote about all the way back in the late 1990s, namely divergence and how it might cause disruption in the markets. If you missed that episode, I certainly invite you to go back and check it out. As you know, the aim of the podcast is to inspire you as an investor. We want to be prerogative, but without being polarizing. And we want to challenge consensus narratives and to advocate how to think critically about investing in an uncertain world and to provide you with a framework and mindset that we believe is truly robust. And if you want to help us achieve our goal, All we ask of you is that if you can comment, if you can continue to send us your questions, if you can share these episodes with your friends, and not least, if you can rate and review them in iTunes and Spotify, we would greatly appreciate it because this is the best way for us to see that you're getting some value from our time and dedication each week to create these episodes. And as long as that continues, we will continue to do them. Rich, it is always a pleasure to be with you. How are you doing? How are things down under? Very good, Niels. Great to be back. Um, it, it's still very wet <coughs> down here. Yeah, last um, time you were <coughs> in your uh, in your Crocs in the basement <laughs> and you were kind of uh, having wet feet and your yeah. Yes, I've had to relocate my office now upstairs into the the, the household. So uh, yeah, so um, it, we haven't seen this rain go away. It's pretty unusual for this time of year, but um, it's still bucketing down. You know, during the week. So. Uh, it's quite a testing time for us down here with all of these rain events. Apart from that sad story of the rain, it's been a fantastic month for trend following. It has. I have a feeling we might talk about that today. Yeah, I'm hoping so. <laughs> but you know what? You talk about freak weather. I mean, it's April 2nd, right? And um, and yesterday on April 1st, we get... Um, 10 inches of snow suddenly out of the blue. Last weekend, we were in shorts and T-shirts here in Switzerland. So it is not just in Australia that the weather is uh, behaving, uh, you know, in an interesting way. Very interesting. Mm. But let's focus on uh, what happened the last week for a second. Um, I mean, the week included the end, of course, of a somewhat troublesome first quarter for the S&P 500, down about 5%. It's worst quarter since Q1 2020, albeit... It did manage a strong comeback starting mid-March and continued through Wednesday uh, of this week, with only Thursday and the final date of the quarter being a little bit of a mood killer. Interestingly, the S&P 500 has been rallying strongly at the same time as crude oil and other energy markets have been selling off, showing how sensitive equity markets seem to be, at least, to the energy price swings at the moment. Now, the brutal bear market in bonds continued this week as well, uh, with the two-year note 108 basis points higher than where it stood on March 1st. 
And following a solid non-farm payroll report, um, two-year notes are nine basis points higher than on the first day of April, or during the first day of April, I should say. As a result, the two-year, 30-year yield curve is now marginally inverted, which is likely to provoke recession fears. Historically, inverted yield curve signals a recession ahead, but one could argue that the selling in bonds is getting a little bit overdone, perhaps. Non-farm payroll showed that the U.S. economy added 426,000 jobs in March, slightly below consensus expectations of 490,000, but the two-month net revision added 95,000 new jobs to the tally, which continued to portray an economy which is pretty robust. Equally encouraging, average hourly earnings rose 5.6% compared uh, to March of last year. And that's certainly more than enough to support the Federal Reserve's to raise the Fed funds by another 50 basis points in May. In fact, one could argue that it's enough for them to raise the Fed funds by 50 basis points on Monday. But that is unlikely to happen. Anyway, Rich, I always want to hear kind of what uh, you've been focusing on, what's caught your attention in the last month or so before we... We dive further into uh, our agenda for today. And of course, um, we always want to know how the battleship is doing. Battleship's doing very well this month. And in particular, like we, we all know about the moves of uh, wheat. We know about the moves of um, crude oil um, associated with the um, uh, that horrible situation over in Ukraine. But we've also got to recognise, as you mentioned um, last week, um, these trends uh, that we've been taking advantage of um, more recently certainly are not new events. Um, a lot of them have been persisting for about one to two years. Um, yeah. But in particular, I was very interested in your discussion with Alan Dunn uh, where he has noted this sort of um, return of the currencies, uh, the power of the currencies to deliver some great trending opportunities. So this month has particularly been strong for me, for my battleship with the currencies and uh, particularly yen-associated pairs, um, things such as uh, USD-JPY, um, the, the CAD-JPY. They've delivered the bonanza for me this month. Um, of course, we've had the benefits of the wheat, uh, but, uh, you know, whilst we had that magnificent e explosion of volatility, it certainly did retrace a lot, as did uh, crude oil. Um but, you know, one of, one of the things that does concern me a bit is this robustness in the S&P 500 with, you know, what we're facing currently in the world. Um, it's really bizarre to me. So, unfortunately, we follow price and don't try and um, determine the fundamental reasons for why this strange behaviour is occurring. But it just doesn't seem right uh, that we've got a resurging S&P 500 um, over the last you know, since since the hiccup, it, it's strongly coming back, and I certainly don't think uh, we're out of the the woods yet. No, I completely agree with that. And as you're rightly, you know, in saying that we don't normally speculate too much about, you know, what what may happen in the future, of course. But as I mentioned before, I mean, there's definitely, or it could be, there is this link about, you know, equities not being. Um, so concerned at the moment as oil really has traded down by 30% from its high on March, I think 8th or 9th, it was at 130 just briefly. So maybe that's, and, and other commodities, of course, selling off since that time. So maybe that's just uh, helping the S&P uh, stay afloat a little bit better. Who knows? Um, of course, if you were a technical analyst, you could argue that this might be just a correction from the first move down. 
and that there is something, you know, not very pleasant ahead. But let's not go down that path right now. But, uh, you know, there's lots of ways to uh, to spin this, I think, at the moment. And, and I think the main point is that what we've witnessed in the last five or six weeks is that it's completely unpredictable, really. I mean, we've been saying this for eight years, that you can't predict anything. But I think it, more people now realize that, you really can't predict anything, and therefore it's um, you know not a bad thing to have price as your main input source when it comes to investing. But speaking about March, and then maybe we can get into a bigger discussion if you want. But um, I mean, March was a um, an interesting month in itself, but it's also the end of a really interesting quarter. And let me uh, just share some some stats that I quickly looked up this morning. The SG Trend Index which started in uh, January of 2000, actually had its third best calendar quarter since inception. So that obviously tells you that it was a pretty exceptional start to the year, to 2022. And the SOCGEN CTA index, which I believe is a little bit broader, um, actually had its second best calendar quarter in history. At, or I say in history, I assume that it started also around January 2000, could have been a bit earlier. So those two things tells you that that it was a very trending period. Of course, you know, we we rewrite about it in our monthly update, but it, it's certainly also confirmed by my own trend barometer, which has been at very elevated levels now for the last three months. And so it just confirms the uh, the environment for trend following has been has been very productive. Of course, as we've seen in the last few months, um, and also in terms of uh, the month of March, the main driver of performance, and then this is quite usual when we have uncertainty and when we have crisis, it has been the commodities, uh, as you rightly said. Whether the currencies will kick in more broadly uh, later on, let's hope so, because it's been a horrible sector to trade from a long-term trend-following perspective, let's put it that way. And hopefully that just shows you how a classical trend-following portfolio will rotate into the sectors where it finds most uh, more opportunity, so to speak. What is interesting to me, um, because we've seen the early numbers from uh, from managers uh, already in March, and they look very, uh, very, very compelling. It's interesting to see that despite the sell-off in energies, despite the sell-off in some of the grains that you talked about, um, you know, my suspicion is that a lot of trend followers have done pretty well in capturing a significant portion of these trends. The gift banks don't seem to be massively high, despite prices actually coming back quite a lot. Could be, of course, that it's coming at the same time as F, maybe yes, interest rates have been under severe pressure. So, so it obviously has uh, offset some of those uh, losses. And and fixed income really has been the bright spot, I would say, not just in March but Q1 as a whole. From where I sit, um, I would say that both currencies um, and probably also uh, equities kind of were flattish uh, in the last uh, three months or so. Uh, although, and I completely concur with you here, the, the yen is starting to show some really interesting opportunities. And of course, in the last couple of weeks, uh, definitely been a nice profit for many trend followers um, with that weakness coming into the um, 
to the yen, um, and most trend followers, of course, would have been capturing that to the short side. In terms of volatility, you mentioned this kind of weird thing going on in the S&P and all of that stuff, and I don't have any any um, any sort of uh, deep insights here, but I did notice that the week ended below 20 for the VIX index, uh, down about 1.36 uh, point for the week, which is pretty low, as you rightly say, given the conflict that we're seeing uh, here in Europe. But other volatility indices paint a slightly different picture because while the VIX has been declining recently, the MOVE index, which is this one-month treasury volatility index, and the OVX, which is the oil volatility, those rose in recent weeks. And the VIX over MOVE ratio and the VIX over OVX ratio was actually in the 94th and 96th percentile on Monday in comparison to the last 10 years. So it seems to me like volatility is moving around a bit between sectors, which we don't really talk a lot about because every everybody, every time people talk about volatility, we automatically zoom in on the VIX, which is just you know one fraction of the... Uh, of the whole universe that we uh, that we trade, um, so those kinds of things have also been, I think, pretty interesting to uh, to keep an eye on uh, as well. What What's interesting to me, Niels, is that when when I'm looking at the major trends that um, have been contributing to my March performance, as as I mentioned before, a lot of them started in 2020 or 2021. But what I find interesting is that uh, we have these trends that um, you know back in 20. 21, we'd have been um, associating those trends with different causal drivers. And yet we find now in, in you know, January through to March, we know clearly it's conflict that seems to be driving these things. But really, it's a series of contingent events which are all supporting each other. So whatever the, you know, the events back in 2020, 2021 that started these trends might have been... Um, economically related. Um, and then, you know, we slowly see this progressive causative impact flowing through different different areas, such as, um, you know, we see it um, influencing things like, um, you know, climate change. We see it influencing things like pandemics. That might be a symptom of overpopulation. All of these symptoms, which are sort of all fairly closely related, are all converging and we're getting these contingent events, which are are really progressively amplifying the the trend direction, if you know what I mean. So, you know, for instance, over the last three years where trend following has been performing very well, it has been this progressive amplification and extension of these trends. So rather than, you know, the, the experience that we suffered during, um, you know, post-2008 through to 2018, where there was this continuous low volatility, continuous whipsaws, now we're getting these contingent events that are amplifying themselves as we're heading towards what I feel is greater uncertainty. And and I see this, you know, I see that, you know, we've taken these positions a long time ago and lo and behold, even though there's a war, they're still in the same direction. Everything's going in the same direction, which I think is very interesting and really supports this medium to long-term approach we do to our, our investment horizon and this this notion that, you know, when divergence starts, be prepared to ride it for a long period of time. It, it might not necessarily end quickly. 
Yeah, I'm not sure I fully agree with everything you've said, other than, of course, you're absolutely right that, that there seems to, at the moment, be this momentum building on something that's been in place for a while. Um, because I was a little bit worried at the time you were talking about kind of trend following being better in crises. So we need to go back to this crisis alpha discussion, which I'm not a big fan of, because, because we have to remember that trend following does really well when there's no crisis and we can find years where where that's been the case and and also if we look at some of the um if we look at some of the um, trends that we've been in for example equities right equities we can't really say have been a bad market for trend followers to be in but it's not really i mean so it's, but it's not really driven by any crisis if you know what i mean in fact the 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 covid thing were a short-term crisis, which actually we benefited not from equities. We lost a lot of money in equities, but we benefited from other sectors, right? Then that turned around and that became this very long trend again with a few wobbles here and there. But generally speaking, managers have done well from that. So I wouldn't say that that we can say that it's been a crisis we've been building on. It's probably more been sort of optimism and ample liquidity in the system or whatever it might be that has driven these equity prices to, to silliness. Some of the other markets, of course, you can mention oil, kind of the same thing, even though there's no doubt that the last part of this trend certainly has been directly related to the to the situation in Europe. And that you can definitely say that that price move is driven by a crisis situation. There's no doubt about that. Can I, can I just bring up a point here? Look, this crisis alpha... Um, we we all accept that trend followers are uncorrelated with equities, um, which means that um, when equity markets tank, there is no guarantee that uh, they'll get a benefit from um, our uncorrelated trend following scenarios. So, but this is where I think the problem is that we've defined crisis as being associated with whatever happens to the equities market, and you know, for instance. We've seen this magnificent bull run of the equity market during periods of economic uncertainty that I would say are crisis periods. So we've seen the onset of the pandemic that um, has put us into a, you know, a, a crisis that we haven't observed for decades back back to um, the Spanish flu. We've seen the emergence of, of the growing concerns associated with climate change, um, which you know, all of these things, I, I actually think we are going down the throat of an emerging crisis from all of these, this confluence of these symptomatic events that all sort of fundamentally their root is held with the human disposition. You know, this is what's creating this conflict or this crisis. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that equities are going to display that. They clearly haven't. We've been having this bull run of equities, which has been blind to these crises underpinning what I see as a major events that are unfolding today. So, you know, my, my concern is I do think that trend following offers crisis protection, provided you don't associate the word crisis with equity markets. Um, because I, I think that, um, you know, when there is uncertainty, economic uncertainty, trend following does incredibly well by virtue of the fact that we have these outliers, by virtue of the fact that predictive, stable regimes are no longer 
um, capable of delivering what we're looking for. We're now in these unpredictable um, climates where outliers are, you know, much more frequent, huge in magnitude. So that that's my concern is that I, I really like what Katie said about crisis alpha. The only thing is I'd like to say don't associate crisis with, you know, the nature of the equity market. Right. I mean, so Katie was absolutely right when she coined the phrase. Uh, I don't really don't want to argue with that at all. Um, and I think it was very well timed and coined and and all of that. And it, I was quite optimistic about it because it helped investors to kind of attach trend following to a purpose, right? It's crisis alpha. I need that in my portfolio. So here we go. The, the reason why I still want to be cautious about embracing that, and, and even though I agree with many of the things you say, I look at it slightly differently. First of all, to, to your point, Yes, uh, trend following has done well during uh, periods of uncertainty, quote-unquote crisis, but it's also done equally well during periods where there's been no crisis and uncertainty. And if, if it has that capability, I don't think we can call it crisis alpha because it's alpha in other periods than crisis. And the other thing, and that's probably my main concern about the term crisis alpha, is that we didn't have a definition of the word crisis, right? So everything became a crisis. The Volmageddon 12-day correction in February of 2018, suddenly that was a crisis. Um, the four weeks of COVID, that was a crisis. That would probably be easier to understand that being being a crisis. But um, then you had Q4 2018, where equity sold off, another crisis, and, and everything just became crisis. And it led to people questioning, well, where's the alpha? Why aren't trend following making money during these periods? Because clearly there's a crisis. And and then as you correctly started out by saying, well, it's a non-correlated return stream and therefore we cannot say how it's going to behave in in any environment really. Um, and that's the whole point. And that's the beauty of it. If people, you know, accept that that's fine. So, I look at it differently, and I know you wanted me to talk a little bit more about this today, so so I'm happy to to go spend a little bit more time. I talked with Mark about it. He had his view on 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 this. Um, you know, I call it trend following in a deglobalized world, but I think we're saying the same thing. You are talking about this as a lot of things heading towards a crisis point. I look at it slightly differently. I look at it as a regime that has been in place for a long time breaking down, which will be followed by another regime. And the regime that I'm thinking of is really down to two points. And we need to go back all the way to uh, the Second World War to understand how it came about, at least in my mind, of course. And I could be completely wrong here, but this is at least my attempt to explain to, to myself and anybody who wants to listen um, some of the things that we have experienced in trend following. So my idea is really that when you go back to the Second World War, and in particular to Bretton Woods in, in July of 1944, those nations, those allied nations, were basically told by the US, if you support us against the Soviet Union, we will give you the safety to basically do your trade, you know, ship your goods around the world. We'll open the US market to, to our consumers for you. So they were basically given everything they could wish for but they had to support the U.S.-led New World Order, 
And of course, we also know that we later got a, um, you know, pegging of the dollar to gold. I think what a lot of people maybe have overlooked is that we all know that the uh, that that gold window closed in 1971. I think maybe people have overlooked the fact that the oil price went up by 400% in 1973, 1974. Interestingly enough, after a meeting with Henry Kissinger and the, and the Saudis. But in any event, what that allowed for was that the oil market became big enough to be the de facto backing of the uh, US dollar. Now that essentially they didn't have enough gold, um, they could use oil. And on top of that, of course, we know that the Saudis agreed to only sell their oil in US dollar, creating the, the petrodollar world that we live in. And so that is part of the kind of this stable regime that, that you talked about, that we've had very stable regime. And again, people may not realize that oil became incredibly stable as a commodity, Oil traded between $15 and $30 for the next 30 years, up until 2003. So lots of stability. That also, of course, led to many things happening globally around, such as the formation of the EU, another cementing of this stable world, peaceful world, um, at least in the Western world. I'm fully aware that there's been other places in the world where there's been conflict, of course. And what clicked for me in terms of putting that kind of historical uh, perspective into the more the newer uh, decades, what I would call the seductive decades of 2000 and 2010, was really my conversation with Kevin Coldine, one of the co-authors of the book, excellent book, The Rise of Kerry. Because in that book, they, of course, very elegantly describe what a Kerry regime is. We've talked about it many times, not just on this podcast, but there's been plenty of articles and, 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 and so on and so forth about Kerry. But if you just think about it, it is a regime where investors get paid handsomely for doing nothing, except owning stocks and owning bonds. And then, of course, risk parity came along. So now you just own bonds with leverage, right? What could be better? Stocks and bonds with leverage, and you make a lot of money. And we did that for 20 years, so to speak, as a world. And because globalization had led to lower inflation. So, you know, companies could produce wherever it was cheapest in the world. They could send it just in time, uh, you know, to the consumer. It allowed for lower lower inflation, lower interest rates, which meant that central banks, every time there was a wobble in the last 20 years, they could step in with their liquidity and zero interest rates and all of that. So it all was perfect. And and rightly, as, as you pointed out, this has led to a massive suppression of volatility in the markets. And it is my thesis, at least, that this is why, perhaps, the last two decades were, quote-unquote, a little bit more challenging for trend followers than the 70s, than the 80s, and the 90s. Can I just add there, Niels, that um, in addition to the volatility suppression we've also seen, commensurate with that is an increase in correlations across asset classes. Right, but that's that's and that is related because... That's another thing that I found, and actually this was thanks to Rob who sent me. I, I knew kind of I knew it already, but he had a quite a nice um, chart that he had found uh, for his upcoming book. And and in that chart, you have like a hundred years worth of data, inflation data, and correlation between stocks and bonds. And what happens is that once inflation goes above three percent, which it has been for many periods in the last hundred years, correlation between stocks and bonds go 
goes positive, meaning they go up and down at the same time. But as we know, inflation in the last 20 years or so, up until a year ago, was below 3%, and therefore correlation between stocks and bonds were negative, giving even more fuel to the risk parity trade and regime and the carry regime and, and all of that good stuff. So it all seems to me, at least in my mind, to fit very well that the uh, safety, stability, the peace offered by the US, led to globalization, led to essentially suppression of volatility and the carry regime and all of that good stuff. However, if we go back six, seven years ago, the US policy shifted, right? And best, I guess, you can visualize that from the slogans of Donald Trump, make America great again. So what happened was at the time, the US... Um, got less interested in Europe. There was even questions about would they support NATO to the same degree as they are showing now, for sure, under Biden, without a doubt. Anyways, to make a long story short, you know, this conflict that we are seeing, and maybe it got triggered by the pandemic to begin with, things started, we, we obviously realized that supply chains in this globalized world maybe it wasn't the best thing to have all your production in China if you can't get your goods or if the Chinese can, you know, have conditions for why they should send, you know, all the, your, all the production to you and so on and so forth. Anyways, so in my mind, at least, this globalized world and this era we've had for 17 years, 70 years from 19, end of the Second World War to now, Instead of that being the norm, and you know, obviously, I'm I'm born in that period, so for me, this has been the norm, and for most people listening to us today, this is the norm. This is how the world works. It's peaceful, especially in the Western world. But may, my conclusion is, maybe that's the anomaly. Maybe this was the odd one out. Why would we have 70 years of of peaceful, stable environment in in Europe, for example, where I am? When you look at the history of Europe, because it has been anything but stable, we have had conflicts and wars throughout history, except for the last 70 years, it's been pretty stable. So my my worry in one way, you know, from a personal uh, point of view, is that we're going back to a world where we're going to have conflict and wars, et cetera, et cetera, very close by. This is basically leading to this breakdown of this Bretton Woods environment, but it also lends itself to breaking down globalization as a as a trend, in lack of a better word. So this is where I came up with this idea of trend following in deglobalized world. Because if we're going to go to deglobalization, everything we've seen in the last 20, 30, 40 years is going to go in reverse. Now, I don't need to spend time on talking about what that means in terms of production being pulled back domestically and what that might do for inflation, whatever. That's not the point of my of my um, summary today. But my point is that I think this will lead to market conditions more like the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. And given that those periods were kind of referred to as the golden age of trend following by many people, and, and, you know, the company I work for, we actually traded through both the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. So we know how good they were and how many trends we had to uh, to benefit from. Um, this is what makes me exciting. I mean, it makes it's, it's worrying on one hand, but it, from a pure trend-following point of view, I think it's exciting because it fits into 
um, the phrase that Mark coined back in the 90s, this whole thing about divergence, right? So we're going back to a world of divergence and we're coming from a world of convergence where these stable arbitrage type strategies did well, but now they might do anything but well going forward while trend following should be able to find um, better opportunities. At least that's my thesis. I like it. I like it. I don't think you're wrong. I, I, I think that, you know, I don't think we've necessarily got to put a pessimistic hat on it either. Um, I, I quite, you know, obviously no one likes change, but it might be that change is just around the corner or we are now facing a regime shift, as, as you said, saying, and I, I really strongly support that view. In fact, I'd, I'd say that post-war, um, we've had this this growth phase up to 2000 and then uh, we had almost a regime shift where central banks started dominating in regulating uh, the volatility of the markets. And that now has got to a position where they've run out of this ammunition and we're now sort of facing this new regime shift back to a decentralised form of economy where we get this decoupling of correlations. Things start working independently. As I think, as a healthy economy, I think they should be decoupled. Um, so I, I tend to look forward to a, a, a decentralised world, one where nations are more self-sustaining, self-supporting, decentralised. I really worried about globalisation and its ability to carve up the resources of this finite planet, this over-exploitation. So, you know, we could be moving into a much more sustainable phase. Yes, decentralised, you know, employ locally, uh, build locally, develop the local capabilities and capabilities of the, the local economies. I really like those principles. That sort of fits within my mandate of sustainable development. Um, so it, it's there seems to be this regime shift. It's almost a forced change towards perhaps something that we're all uncomfortable with. But um, if we can start accepting this change, it actually might be a brighter future for us. Yeah, I mean, there there should always be something positive, uh, you know, in in the future. Let you know, we should definitely hope for that, um, without a doubt. Even though I think we can have to go through uh, some tough times, uh, and and this is the other thing that I've been kind of voicing a little bit, maybe not um, so much on the podcast, but certainly when I talk to uh, my clients and potential clients, and that's this thing about the fact that I don't think we, I think we've lost the imagination in terms of what markets can do uh, in the last 20 years during this very stable uh, regime. So, I mean, again, if you had asked anyone 24 months ago, if they thought that the range for oil would be minus $37 and $130 <laughs> in, 24, in the next 24 months and eight or 18 months, whatever it was, uh, nobody would have guessed that, right? So, so you know, realizing that there are some significant forces at play from time to time. Um, and, and then, of course, our argument is naturally that you need to make sure your portfolio is prepared for a world that doesn't look like the last 20 years. And this is another worry because I don't think most portfolios are which means we can get uh, additional stress from uh, forced selling. I mean, just look at the 30-year bonds in the US. They're down from a price, at least in the futures, from about 190 to about 145, 46 uh, at the low recently. 
that's a big move down well, if you were long Warren, bonds. And, as and Warren Buffett says, <laughs> soon, soon we might be finding who has been swimming naked for the last 20 years. No, no, absolutely. But, 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 but think about it. They're down 45 big points. Yeah. And the Fed has so far only raised rates by a quarter percent. <laughs> I mean, that is scary. Um, in, in my mind. But what I wanted to finish off with before we move on is even if I'm wrong in my thesis, we've just demonstrated for the last two years of quote-unquote a carry regime that trend followers have still made money. Maybe not as much as we did in the 70s and the 18s and the 90s, but we've certainly been making money and we've certainly been a better alternative as you and I have written about. We've certainly been a better alternative to being long fixed income in a 60-40 portfolio. Imagine what that portion can do if interest rates keeps going up, right? And we get even better opportunities for trend following. Then I think more people will realize that, oh my gosh, I really need an alternative to the fixed income part. We talk about 60-40 as that's how most investors are invested, quote unquote. In Europe, it's much worse. In some countries, it's 80% bonds and 20% equities. And the worst thing is, it's how the pension fund systems often are invested in certain countries. That's devastating. What's that going to do to the future generation when they want to you know, retire if all their money is tied up in bonds that are heading south, so to speak? There's so much stuff, uh, Rich, we could go on for a whole day just talking about this. Um, Do you think we should start writing sort of a report, a report called the doom and gloom report, sort of like Mark Faber used to do? I think someone do. else. I was just going to say, I think someone else came, you know, came up with that name. So maybe we have to uh, <laughs> uh, find another one. But no, and this is the whole point, Rich. Often people think of trend following as some kind of doom and gloom. We have to have a crisis to make money. This is why I want to get away from it. We don't need a crisis to make money. We've proven that many times. But the fact that we can also make money when there is a crisis, that's an extra bonus, right? Yeah, look, What's look not to, to like? the bountiful corn harvest as opposed to the, you know, the famine. <laughs> exactly. So with that said, and I'm sure we'll talk and debate this um, much more in the future. Um, we have some questions and we have some topics um, which we need to get uh, to. And um, the first question is from Andrew. Andrew writes, could you all define the use of a trailing versus initial stop in systems you use? Questions like how long is initial stop used until it switches to trailing stop? How do you go about redefining um, a breakout once you get stopped out? Does a breakout counter restart? Happy to clarify further if an e in an email if it doesn't make sense. No, I think it makes perfect sense, Andrew. So I'm going to let Professor Brennan put on his um, educational hat and tell you a little bit about trailing and initial stop. Great. Well, that was a good question from Andrew. But look, I can really only discuss what I do. Um, obviously, uh, Lots of people have different methods, but um, so for all my classic trend following systems, I adopt the the same method to placing my initial stops and trailing stops. Um, the reason I do that is to ensure there is consistent application because I am trading any liquid asset the same way. So I'm applying the same rules-based process for the setting of my initial stop and trailing stop. So the way I do it is that... Um, 
I'm a big supporter of Jerry's approach where we use realised balance as a basis to um, understand what is known at a point in time as opposed to this floating equity that might exist at a point in time where um, the verdict is still out as to how that um, unrealised equity is going to translate into the future. So I do know what my realised balance is at any point in time. So I use that realised balance and I use... um, um, an average true range method to then define uh, my initial stops and my trailing stops. And what I do in the application of my average true range, I'm using a multiplier here to determine what my um, ATR, I might use an ATR period of say 20 or 25 days um, because I'm trading on the daily time frame. Um, I'll then might use a multiplier of, of say two times multiplier or three times multiplier to set my um, my initial stop. And then my trailing stops are set independently to um the initial stop. Now, what what I do with my trailing stops is I give them more room to breathe, and I'll explain why a bit later. But so I have these two processes of using the same ATR-based mechanism, but defining what my initial stop and what the ATR and my trailing stop are going to be. Now, when I take uh, my entry into a trade, the first thing I do is I allocate a, a risk, a dollar risk to each of my what I call bets. So every trade I take at any point in time is a consistent risk dollar bet. Um, so say for an instance, I had a $100,000 portfolio and let's say I was risking 25 basis points per trade, I would therefore be risking $250 per trade. So that is my universal application of a desired risk dollar um, on my realized balance. So my realized balance was 100,000, which might be different to my my equity, which might have been 150,000 because 50,000 was floating and still unrealized. So now that I've got my dollar um, uh, risk allocation, uh, that is the same for every uh, market at any point in time, because the realized balance does change over the course of time. So at the time I'm taking a trade, it's calculating it at that point in time. Uh, and I have my my ATR uh, for my initial stop and my ATR for my trailing stop. Now, how I determine those ATRs is um, I use this extensive data mining process where I test uh, the most reasonable um, stop loss and the most reasonable trailing stop, not necessarily for the market um, I want to trade on, but across all of my um markets in my portfolio. So let's say I have 50 markets in my portfolio. I'll be defining that initial stop ATR um, by testing it across all of my portfolio. Therefore, there's going to be a common ATR to each one of those markets. The same deal is for my trailing stop. And I use this data mining process. So what the data mining process does is it it tells me which are the correct multipliers to use based on the history Um, of this very uh, extensive sample size. So when I'm doing these back tests to define the ATRs for my initial stop and trailing stop, I'm, for instance, using a back test of 40 to 50 years for a single instrument and then multiplying that by 50 markets. So we've got 50 different possible histories of 50 years, which I'm testing this um, this risk mitigation device of my stop and my trailing stop. That therefore tells me the common ATR that is applicable across my universe because I want to trade everything the same way. 
Right. So I've got my ATR and my initial stop. And what I find in that data mining process is that even though my logic tells me my initial stop needs to be tighter than my trailing stop, and I'll explain why in a sec, the data from my data mining and my research confirms this. So the first thing is, even though I've got a, a an assumption about why it should be the case, I've tested it through my research-driven process to make sure that that's what the data also confirms. So then, why do I have a tighter initial stop as opposed to my trailing stop? Well, as you're aware, Jerry and I both use the realised balance because we know what the realised balance is at any particular point in time. That's a known fact. The unrealised floating equity comprises what I call open profits. And because we always let profits run, we don't know what the extent of that unrealised profit is going to turn into over the course of time. It's got to be realised before we can lock it in and say, that's a confirmed fact. So therefore, um, I let my profits run. So I, I do not tamper with my floating equity. That is my letting profits run statement. And what I find is the reason why my initial stop is usually tighter than my trailing stop is because when I actually um, adopt rules for my entry, I'm not only using, say, a breakout method such as uh, a classic breakout method, such as a donkeyan breakout technique. I'm also confirming it with another indicator, which is saying that at this point in time of entry, not only is there a breakout, but there is a breakout under considerable increased momentum. So I'm looking for an increased momentum surge um, coincident with the breakout occurring. So there are two things going on there. There's a breakout has occurred in the price, plus it's under what I call a volatility expansion phase. Things are starting to move, get red hot. So my my entry is where I'm targeting where the we first start getting this volatility expansion as we enter a big trending period because I want momentum backing me uh, in taking these breakouts to avoid false breakouts and whipsaws. So that entry condition has a few more conditions in it than what my trailing stop is. So at the point of entry, I'm, I'm tight. And by being tight with my initial stop, I'm also tending to sort of lift my position size because I'm risking a fight defined risk bet. And by having a fairly tight distance between my entry and my stop, that allows me to put a fairly high position relative to the risk I'm betting at that point in time. But then beyond that expansion phase of entry, I don't know how that trend is going to play out. And I want as much breathing room as possible to allow that trend to unfold or this outlier to unfold. And as we've discussed, outliers aren't these nice, pretty linear trends. Uh, they can be explosive trends. They can be very ugly in form, but they are exponentially rising. Um, so they're, they're not um, what I call as precise, defined visual trends. They, because we're in this tail region where we are um, hitting these outliers, they can be highly volatile, ugly trends. So you want lots of breathing room um, to let that, that um, uh, let your profits run unfold with outliers. If you find that you're too prescriptive, you're going to be whipsawed out of these outliers because they're incredibly volatile. And a lot of people, for instance, when they were targeting wheat, and targeting crude oil just recently found that because they had too tight a stops, 
uh, because they're probably too precise in their trend definition. They're getting whipsawed out, and then it was difficult being able to re-enter back into those trends when they started uh, retracing back into the direction of the trend. To avoid that, you need to undertake this very extensive sample size test across multiple different histories, which naturally widens or gives you more breathing room because you're testing it across many more alternate histories. So you don't get such a tight, precise initial stop if you're testing it over one market because I'm testing it over 50. I've got nice wide stops and then I've got even wider trailing stops giving this full capacity to breathe. So to Andrew's question, um, what I find is initially, as soon as I enter a trade, my initial stop sets the defined adverse risk move, the price is allowed to go before I exit. Now, just be aware that under very volatile um, regimes, you might find that your stop isn't observed. But we've got another risk mitigation device, which is our very small bet size, which is the ultimate form of risk protection we have in our product portfolio. Because when, for instance, I'm only allocating uh, a bet size of $250, I'm reducing my position size to very small scales. So my bets for each trade are very small, which means that if there is an adverse event where my stops are not recognized, I don't find that I've got a very large uh, adverse loss on my hands. So back in the Swiss DPEG days where I found my stops weren't observed, uh, because I risked 50 basis points at that particular point in time, even though today I'm only risking 25 basis points, back then it was 50 basis points, and uh, my slippage was four times my 50 basis points. So I effectively ended up with a 2% 2, 2 loss, which was extreme for me, but a 2% loss is not going to kill your portfolio. Um, and that's because we have these small bet sizes. So the real reason we use these initial stops and these trailing stops, as, as I've mentioned before, is to reduce risk from our portfolio. What I, what I regard as releasing risk from the portfolio, which is a way a trend follower is able to always accept future, more future risk um, because they're continually releasing risk. They're not holding on to it like a buy and hold technique or, or other forms of trading technique that don't release that risk from the portfolio. We're continually releasing it through what I call the, the risk release valves. And that's the initial stop and the trailing stop. Uh, yeah. Okay, no, I mean, obviously a very elaborate explanation. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time, Andrew, um, adding to that, um, except I'm going to try and explain it in a, in, in, in a slightly different way, uh, the way I think about it as well, and, and, and trying to keep it sort of super simple, um, because the way I think about it is, first of all, to your question about when do you switch from initial to trailing, in my mind, visually, if you just think about it, well, I mean, on a, if you take a long trade, for example, as soon as your trailing stop becomes closer than your initial stop you could say that's when you switch over so what makes up the initial stop what makes up the trailing stop well in my mind the initial stop is just your it's the rule you have for getting out of a trade when you enter it right so it's 
uh, if if you're buying a hundred day breakout. And by the way, some of the uh, I mean, some methodologies of trend following doesn't allow you to use stops really moving averages. I don't think really you could say it's a stop, but uh, based system. But if it's a breakout for sure, super easy. So if you have a hundred day um, breakout to the upside and and your exit is is say a fifty day uh, low, then obviously that's where you can calculate and 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 size your position, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. If the market then starts to moving uh, in your favor and it moves higher you need something different well you could you, one of them could also be your 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 50 day low still of course that could you be your trailing stop so your initial stop methodology becomes your trailing stop methodology as well but at least in my own trend following model um we use other types of trailing stops or, or exit stops as well so it could be you know the distance from the most recent high if, if you're in a long trade or something else and and the way it was designed back then was just to say well let's just pick the one that is of those rules let's pick the one that gives us the tr- stop that is closest to the current price um and and then that's today's trailing stop but whether it's a distance from a high or a 50 day low it doesn't really matter it's whatever your your rules determine it to be um so so just think about it in 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 well at least that's how i simplified a bit yeah look um in relation to i, I think jerry uses a uh, a donkian um, exit uh, for his um, his exits from his position, as opposed to where I'll, I'll use a, a wide ATR. He'll use a donkian exit, and really, it's the same thing. It's the same deal. Exactly. It's a short term yeah. donkian exit, as opposed to his long term donkian entry. And that short term donkian exit ratchets up as price moves in your favour, just like a trailing stop. So, yeah. the technique. You know, you can use lots of different techniques for it, but it's a principle of letting your profits run uh, once your trade is initiated, and and um, your initial stop is always your your adverse risk point. That that's the worst worst case scenario. Yes. Okay, let's move on because we've got a couple of other things uh, or questions that we try and get to. Um, this is something, uh, again, I'm going to let you answer this, uh, Rich, and maybe we can do just a short answer because we're already almost at the hour mark. Um, but it's from Nicholas, and he says, Hi, I'm running uh, for some time now my personal trend-following model from Australia with my own money. I'm back-testing my model in Excel. It becomes more and more complicated. Uh, do you know any other affordable backtesting system. A short answer to that, do you know anything, Rich? Well, yes. Look, uh, the good thing from Nicholas is that um, he's an Australian. Good G'day, Nicholas. Um, the the second course. thing is that yeah, I, I certainly cut my teeth with Excel, and you can do a lot within Excel, um, and especially if you've got a bit of VBA backing you as well, then you can start going into uh, you know, some of the portfolio compilation processes and that sort of stuff. But uh, there's a lot of off-the-shelf software. Some of it is free with caveats attached. So um, usually, you know, um, you find these very good quality backtesting solutions such as, you know, TradeStation, Ninja State, Ninja Trader, um, Trading Blocks. Um, there are a whole variety. Ami Broker. There's a whole variety of very powerful backtesting platforms. But usually, um, if they are free, there's, there's usually... Um, Clauses attached where you've got to uh, do a certain number of trades with the associated brokerage that provides you that platform uh, that allows it to be a, a free platform for you to use. But, um, you know, I, I personally, at, at, because this is my life um, or my hobby and my career, um, 
I, I think you do have to be prepared to shell out a bit for a good quality backtesting platform. So um, we do, for instance, I, I work with a programmer and we do our own sort of solutions ourselves because um, um, he's a coder and we, we tailor it for our own specific requirements. But there is some very powerful software. Trading Blocks is great software for futures traders. Um, so if you're a trend follower, um, Trading Blocks is fantastic software. It not only does your backtesting, it also does your portfolio portfolio work and all of your analysis. So that's a great bit of software. Um, Strategy Quant X is something I'm very familiar with and I use quite heavily. That is a fantastic bit of software. But, you know, these are quite pricey um, bits of software, but really in the scheme of things, it's a small price to pay uh, for the power it delivers you. So I really like those things. So all I'd say, Nicholas, is um, I'd, I'd be prepared to perhaps uh, invest rather than uh, be locked into a particular platform that demands that you've got to be connected to a particular brokerage or trade a particular market. Because we're trend followers, we want diversification. I think it's best to, to fork out a bit of money to get some great um, backtesting software, portfolio compilation software that doesn't sort of uh, link you to any brokerage service or whatever and allows you to do all of it yourself. And also importantly for me at least is I, I want uh, my research or my backtest platform and my portfolio compilation pr platform to transition seamlessly into my live execution platform because um, I adopt automated approaches and so my orders are funneled from my, my backtesting solution. They're funneled into execution orders for um, live implementation and I don't want to have to use separate APIs for, for different devices to link to a particular service. I like it a seamless transition. So that that's all I'd be saying, Niels, for, from my perspective. Sure. No, I mean, it makes perfect sense. Actually, yeah, I mean, I'm in your camp because obviously having been doing this for a long time, I've also worked with programmers and building platforms like that. But I will say it takes a long time to build a robust backtesting platform. Um, once you have it, it's wonderful, but it's painful to get there um, to make sure it actually calculates uh, correctly and all that stuff. So let's leave it at that. Maybe Nicholas needs to get into coding as well. If he does, you know, something like Python or something like that would be a sure. choice or, or R Useful, or C++. Definitely. Sure, sure, sure. Um, all right, so we have two questions that I want to get to, um, but we need short answers to some extent because the first question I know is going to cause some excitement on your side to, to talk about it, but but I will say we need to... Uh, I'll put up my fingers like this, Rich, once you get to a point where <laughs> now we need to uh, to wrap it up. Um, but I do know that uh, you, you get very passionate about this, but I want to answer it in particular because uh, I, uh, I know um, where the question comes from. It comes from Brian, whom I know. And, um, and it is actually a really good and very topical question, so it's worth... Um, having having it let and and brian writes let's take recent crude as an example obviously volatility exploded in in, in recent up move and stayed high figuring you're long which i think most trend followers would have been and you do some type of vol targeting in your system you would have reduced your winning positions now even though we've had significant pullback pretty much any long-term trend following system like a dongjun uh, system would still be long when, if ever, do you reestablish your full position uh, if volatility collapses? There you go. Complexity, complexity, volatility, targeting. I mean, um, 
I'm, I'm hoping this is not Brian, as in Brian Silcott. Um, it is not. I can <laughs> I can assure you, it is not. Okay. Well, look, it could be, but it's not. I, I suppose I, I stand in a very uh, particular territory where I'm very opposed to volatility targeting measures. So perhaps this isn't a, a good question for me to respond to. Perhaps you should, Niels, and your um, okay. Your, your All right. Way. So let me give it a go. So 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 generally speaking, and and this is an, actually an interesting debate at the moment, of course, because I do think we have some. And by the way, I'm going to ask you not to flick your pen, uh, Rich, because I can hear it in my uh, headset here. Um, now, it is very interesting because of this explosion in volatility that we've had uh, in recent uh, weeks. So it's, it's, it's very good. Now, I think for a lot of managers who do use some kind of volatility, I wouldn't say targeting. It could be risk management as well, you know, dynamic position sizing, let's call it that, unlike... Uh, what what you do, Rich, unlike what, what Jerry does, where it just stays the same from the point of entry. Um, clearly, and, and Brian is absolutely right, you would have seen a reduction in position sizing in the recent weeks. Of course, as long as the prices um, you know, continue to sell off, if it's, say, crude oil, as, as Brian mentioned, you could say the position, having dynamic position sizing could have been a good idea, right? You, you're getting out as the market moves up, so you have fewer contracts on your book as the markets uh, sell off. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily you're making more money from it, but you probably would have a little bit less volatility in your P&L stream from, from that market. The big question, of course, is when do you get back and, and you kind of, uh, as Brian is, is alluding to, what if volatility completely co you know, collapses? Well, then you probably would get back uh, all things being equal. But I do think all managers have their own unique way of, of managing uh, these dynamic position sizes. It's, it, it's not, at, at least I can only speak from, from, from our firm's perspective, it's not related to volatility singular for that market, meaning your position size is not living in a vacuum. It, you know, the, the whole risk calculation for your portfolio has to look at all of the positions you have on, all the correlations you have uh, going on in your portfolio, and of course the volatilities. But clearly volatility in a single market has a determinant uh, effect on uh, the sizing of your uh, position if you use dynamic position sizing. If you don't, it, it wouldn't have, and you just have your stop, and it will stop you out at some point, and, and so on and so forth. I think the bigger question, because obviously I'm familiar with the discussions um, that we've had and between people who do use, quote-unquote, vol targeting, uh, and people who don't. So we're fully familiar with that, Rich. What I don't quite understand, and maybe it has been talked about and I just missed it, is shouldn't it be fairly simple to figure out which is, quote-unquote, best? Now, let's forget about the fact that some people just prefer one to the other. That's fine. It doesn't have to be best, but it's their preference. But if you wanted to figure out which one is objectively the best methodology, because both camps argue that this is best, right? And I think we can well, find there, evidence there's a pretty for one being better. way of determining which is best. Well, well if, you, if you allow me just to, to elaborate here, because I was thinking, and this might be a job for Rob, actually, um, who's coming on soon, but I'm not sure he could get around to it. But if you had, and I wanted to hear your opinion about this, Rich, if you took two similar systems... And we go back to the 1980s. So we have 20 years of the Kerry regime and 20 years of the before Kerry regime. So we try not to um, favor one type of, of trading or position sizing to another. But if you have two similar systems, right? So sim similar 
com- um, parameter combinations and all that stuff. But you, but we could agree on a fair way of saying this is a fair way of having dynamic portfolio sizing. Wouldn't that tell us the answer in terms of which is best if we just have that difference in two systems? And of course, it's a backtest, but it doesn't really matter if it's a backtest. Wouldn't that give us the answer? Well, the the key difference is that when when I'm talking about volatility targeting, I'm talking about from the point of entry going forward, do you adjust your position size um, uh, as the trade plays out until you exit? So clearly there's if, – if you do adjust your position size, in other words, take profits off the table. So that's reducing your possible maximum potential from that process. If we agree on that, uh, but, as volatility well, you could targeting. also add to your position. You could also add to your position. Okay. It's not just about reducing. You can add to your position as well. Okay, so if you add to your position, um, then I, w- there isn't an easy way to to test the two. But if you don't, if you are just you know uh, always decreasing your exposure by taking profits off the table, then clearly in a more turbulent regime with more tails, um, you'll find that such a technique will lose in the long term compared to a technique that doesn't tamper with letting profits run. However, if you are are retained in a fairly suppressed regime, as we have been for the last 20 years, you'll find that um, the nature of those outliers will mean revert. And because of that mean reverting quality in that suppressed regime, uh, then um, this volatility targeting will work. So, if you wanted to do a, a fair comparison about which which is better, you'd have to extend your regimes to capture a variety of different regimes. So go back to 1970, test your volatility targeting model and um, your um, your non-volatility targeting model over maybe a 50, 60-year period and see the overall result because volatility targeting is has been a a consequence that has sort of arisen post-2000. It wasn't originally in the old CTA formula of classic trend following. It's been a more recent addendum or addition, which has made it a bit more complex, the formula. But I think it's been a specific response to um, this regime we've experienced. It's interesting you say that. Uh, Very interesting. First of all, just a couple of things. I'm I'm intrigued by the fact that you gravitated towards this thing about well if you use volatility targeting positions can only get smaller because I think it's very important to understand that no 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 you know you can be in a long trade and volatility increases so you reduce your position size but at some point if you're still long and then volatility decreases well you increase your position size so I don't think we can conclude just out of the blue saying well even if it's a volatile market, it means that the non-volatility targeted, if we use that term, um, methodology is going to do better because in a volatile world, those systems could get stopped out completely and not participate at all. We don't know that. Uh, Even though I agree with you, if there is some really extreme outliers where the tail of it comes with high volatility, it should be you know, having a bigger position size at the time, but then it comes down to 
how well does it actually exit of that trade? How much of that trend can it capture? So that's one thing. Um, and um, But I agree with you. We definitely would need a period. Uh, and that's why I just said, why don't we just start in 1980, 20 years of non-carry regime and 20 years of, of quote-unquote carry regime. But I'm not so sure... Um, I'm not so sure I agree with you that the vol targeting came as a result of the carry regime. I'm thinking that it came as a result of technology because, and I speak a little bit from experience, because our firm came from the non-dynamic position sizing world to the dynamic position sizing world, mainly because we could now do it from a computer point of view. We could not. We could simply not calculate it in the 1970s uh, when we had to go to the local library and run um, the, the the whole uh, card punchers to calculate what the position is going to be tomorrow. Right? It was impossible. Um, but but so I think that I'm not so sure it's the environment that drove this methodology. I think it's the fact that now computers could do it in real time if needed. Um, I could be wrong because I can't speak for other people, but I'm just hesitant to kind of say, oh, this is why people do it. And also the other thing I'm thinking here, Rich, if some of the biggest firms that you and I know in this industry that we all respect a lot is doing it that way, it might suggest that there is some benefit to doing it that way, right? Yeah, I mean, because if you think about a lot of the people who don't do it, and 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 again, this is a gross generalization, so I just want to preface with that. Maybe some of them comes from this pre two thousand era where you couldn't do it anyway, so you just did it the other way, the the you know the the Bill Dunn way, the the the, the Richard Dennis way, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And we just never changed because it kind of worked, right? This, if you you know, if it ain't broken, don't fix it, right? So we just continue to do that, and um, and it is of course interesting when you hear people in one camp and people in the other camp. They kind of both respect what the other people are doing. They're not saying one is better than the other or right or wrong, um, but I do think it must be possible to actually just do a simple test where you use both. You have to agree the rules because the dynamic position sizing has to be kind of fair in its design. So it's an open question still for me, but more importantly, I think that the the robustness of trend following as a methodology actually is the fact that you can do both and you'll still be fine. Mm. Well, You're quiet. Mm, I see you're, uh, well, you're thinking. Yeah, I, I'm not, not as certain as you are with that. I, I, I just feel as though we've, we've compromised our very simple simple approach justified by a very large sample size with added complexity which i think is a degree of overfitting um, but that that's just me uh, it's going to be very hard to convince me otherwise no but what i'm saying is not that one is right and and and, and one is wrong i'm just saying that there must be a reason why many managers maybe it's the european managers i don't know um, but that many managers gravitated towards using a more dynamic approach to position sizing. Well, uh, or I'd say there was a pressure by investors that actually changed the way the trend following um, operated. So I would say that there was. This is a question of 
a business decision for AUM as opposed to a decision for long-term wealth. So I believe it's a decision made by fund managers to offer the smoother um, returns to satisfy the investors and keep AUM as opposed to um, a decision that really is in the genuine interests of people that want to generate long-term wealth. I think that is a very fair point, Rich, and I think you are onto something here. But let's not forget that if you can avoid some of the drawdown, and I don't mean to keep the clients, but if you can keep your equity curve at a higher level, the compounding effect, as you rightly have explained to our listeners on many occasions, the compound effect is even higher. So, so if we find that having dynamic position sizing means that you don't go into as deep drawdowns as not having them, then you could argue that maybe that is going to give you a higher return over time, all things being equal, because, of course, you and I know names of people where we say, yeah, that's definitely classic trend, and they make tons of money over time, but they also run with much higher. I mean, we need to find some kind of, you know, of course, people would say, well, let's just look at their volatility, but that's just one measure, right? But we need to have some way of saying, yeah, that's an apples-to-apples comparison. You can't compare this manager with that manager you know, willy-nilly, you have to have some kind of uh, rules for that. But I will just say that the compound effect that you have explained so well here is important when we say, yeah, it's just to keep AUM in, so we want to have smoother ride. Maybe that's not the full story, even though I think that is part of the story for sure. Yeah, but... The, How does look, that sound? No, I, I've still got my problems here because the explanation I gave for the, the compounding effect um, was talking about um, a move away from sharp, a move away from yes. a straight ascending equity curve um, in, in response to um, a path-dependent equity curve. Okay, so... Mm -hmm. and. What this path dependency under classic trend following demonstrates is that the geometry of that equity curve, if you have far greater step-ups in your equity curve than the drawdown effect of your equity curve, you get an asymmetric, upwardly sloping um, equity curve pre-compounding. So that when you do compound the upwardly sloping, because the geometry of that stepped-up equity curve, where we get these massive non-linear step-ups when we catch these outliers, because we're not compromising our ability to catch these outliers by taking profit off the table, we get these massive step-ups, our drawdowns, when you relate them geometrically between the step-ups and the drawdowns, the step-ups are higher than the drawdowns. This compensates for this volatility drag created by drawdown in your compounding. So the the geometry of the equity curve of the classic trend follower, and this is why some with volatile equity curves produce a high serenity ratio. They don't produce a high sharp ratio, but they produce a high serenity ratio because the path-dependent geometry is actually better for compounding. Well, that's actually going to be my question because I know you know the math much better than I do, and I and I'm going to look at that, and maybe we'll we will talk about that for when we do our next uh, monthly report, which of course will be for Q1, which is a great, uh, uh, it's going to be a great report to share with people, because 
and I don't remember the names that are... Uh, well, I do remember the names actually in the current selection of the serenity uh, ratio. And if I think of those names, right? So you and I came to the conclusion that serenity is probably a good way of selecting managers because it looks at the path dependency and therefore it doesn't really pick managers with deep, deep drawdowns. I mean, at least they're penalized as far as I can tell. And so the managers it has picked last year, this year, and in previous years are not the most volatile managers as far as I recall. I, I should We should look this up, but as far as I recall. And this is why I'm thinking... And I know we're not going for the highest return. We're going for the highest serenity ratio, which is different. But it is something you and I both agreed on would be a good way of selecting. So aren't we saying, in this sense, that those who don't just let loose and 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 allow for deep drawdowns because they don't want to have any dynamic position sizing, aren't we concluding that that maybe there is something to this dynamic position sizing? When, when we're comparing equity curves, we've got to recognise that the different managers apply different leverage within their models. So, for instance, if I, uh, I got a, a result of TransTrend, which produces a fairly um, you know, steady, what appears to be a, a, a straight sort of equity curve, it does have these step-ups and it does have these drawdowns. But um, if I apply greater leverage in my models, I'd start accentuating that geometry. I'd find that my step-ups were greater and my drawdowns were, were greater. It's a relationship between the uplifts, the non-linear uplifts, and the linear downturns. So this is where the the positive skew of the strategy starts embedding itself in the equity curve. It produces this geometrical asymmetry in the equity curve that means that um, provided that a trend follower is successful in capturing outliers, particularly early in their their history. So, um, you know, if they start in 2000, if they're catching outliers, you know, in 2002, 2005 or whatever, uh, that, that uplift significantly improves the compounded wealth of that um, equity curve when you start compounding it because you get this nonlinear uplift early on in the series that has a lot of time for that effect to be compounded. So um, when we look at geometric returns, yes, drawdowns do naturally uh, mean that mathematically you need to, um, after a 50% drawdown, you've then got to recover 100% to come back to zero. That's a, a mathematical artefact of the geometry, but that's just looking at the drawdowns. You've got to also look at what are the uplifts in that geometry because, uh, you know, when we're talking about a smooth equity curve, so when we're talking about, um, you know, smooth equity curve like a sharp ratio, like long-term capital management, we see this dead straight smooth equity curve. That is a risk metric just associated with the smoothness of the curve. It's not looking at the um, the risk events along the path, which detrimentally affect the compounding effect. So you've got to use different ratios. When we start looking at um, the Ma ratio, which is looking at the relationship between the compound annual growth rate and the drawdown, you can see it's comparing um, the geometry of uplift, Kagar, against the geometry of downturn, drawdown. That's why the Ma ratio is this relationship between the two. It's a risk-reward geometry or relationship. The serenity goes one step further and says, rather than just looking at the maximum adverse excursion of a single drawdown like the Ma ratio does, 
let's look at the overall geometry of all of the maximum adverse excursions of drawdown. So it's looking at um, the tails of that that equity curve, and it's looking at what is the geometry saying there in relation to these uplifts. So you're still, with serenity ratio, you're still using the, the compound um, annual growth rate, but you're, relation, you're relating it to the overall geometry of the drawdowns, not just the maximum adverse excursion. So it's a bit more detailed, and it's a bit more, uh, it, it, it produces a bit, bit more of a better geometry than we found with Ma. But it's not to say that it's all about protecting drawdowns, that the success of our compounding is as much to do with our outliers as it is about our drawdowns. In fact, it's more to do about our outliers because if we, we don't have, if we don't collect any outliers in our trade history, we lose all of that positive skew and we find we've got a significant drawdown which we can never reach a new high watermark. Um, so the, it's a relationship between the two. That's the important thing, and it's the geometry of the relationship between the two, and where nonlinear um, uplift is better than linear downturn. Let me ask you one last thing on this topic, um, and then we'll move on. Um, if you had, if we knew for sure one manager who uses non-dynamic position sizing and one manager who does, and we looked at their two performance records. What measure would you use to tell which one, quote unquote, if you just had to say, yeah, this is better than the other, which 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 single measure, if there is such a okay, thing, so would you use to, to make that determination? What I would do is I'd use a, I wouldn't use a period from 2000 to 2020 to do a comparison. No, no, let's just say you get 40 years. Okay. Yeah, let's, you let's get 40 years, years of data. Let's yeah. say I'd use 50 years, but I'd use a serenity ratio over a 50 year period. That'll tell you. Okay. Okay. Cool. The the problem we're facing with, yeah. um, you know, just looking at from 2000 to 2020, we've already discussed on this podcast how we suspect this is one contiguous regime. No, no. And of course, we do it because the indices that we use, the SOCGEN Trend Index, started in 2000. That's right. I completely agree. And look, I was, I was actually very interested because when I looked at Dunn's performance and I looked at the KGAR from 2000 to current day, it's far lower than the KGAR from 1984 to current day. And that's because the regime pre-2000 uh, was a far better regime for trend followers, or CTAs in general. Uh, th this is this is sort of what we're... Yes, yes, but, yes, yes, but what, what we also have to be careful for when we look at single managers is... We have to also account for the changes that has been made over time in the model. It's not the same model in yeah. in eighty four as it is in two thousand twenty two. That's I can say that yes, for sure. But, uh, so let me throw another one at you. And of course, I have to be careful not mentioning performance numbers uh, due to regulation and all of that. But one thing I do look at is, in our case, the performance from eighty four until now. I look at the performance from six to now, because that's when we made the first research upgrade, and from 2013 to now, right? So three different periods, and two of them, you could say, is in the carrier regime, and one of them is the full thing, right? Do you know what? The performance analyzed is almost the same. Okay. Identical. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to move on, um, because we, you and I, we have a tendency that we can go on forever. <laughs> Um, but uh, my wife will not be happy with me if that happens today. So, um, 
quick uh, recap of performance for March and, of course, year-to-date um, for the CTA industry. Uh, happy to announce that the Beta 50 was up 6.5% in March, up 9.5% in Q1. Sockgen CTA index up 8% in March, up 13.09 for the uh, first three months. Sockgen trend index soaring 9.9% in March, up 17.93% so far year-to-date. And the Sockgen short-term traders index also enjoying a good month, up 3.69 and up 5.51% so far year-to-date. In comparison, um, we have the MSCI World Index, which was up 2.5% in March, but down 5.5% year-to-date. The S&P Total Return Index up 3.71 in March, down 4.6% so far this year. But the World Government Bond Index down another 2.28% in March and down 4.88%. That is a tough start for the the bonds um, for sure. Next week, I have Rob back. He's going to be here. So uh, a chance for you to uh, send in your questions. As usual, info at toptradersonplug.com is where you send them to. And Rob and I will do our best to answer some of them. Maybe there are some uh, new questions following Rich and my conversation today on on all of this. Um, and we should probably gear up. I mentioned that to uh, Jerry uh, not long ago. We should gear up for uh, getting together, all of us, uh, with Rob and Mark and Alan and and you, Rich, and Jerry, of course, and do one of these uh, group conversations. They they're quite fun. So um, so we'll we'll try and plan that maybe for Q two sometime in Q two. Um, I think that's pretty much it. You can, if you enjoy these conversations, you can help us by rating uh, them and leaving a review in Spotify and in iTunes so that more people can find us. And uh, I think that just leaves me to say from Rich and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.